Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you haven't become too miserable waiting for this to start. We'll try and redress the situation anyway. My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to tonight's talk is Philosophy and Happiness. And the subtitle is that true happiness is being happy everywhere and in all circumstances. So we're not talking about a happiness which comes and goes, but a happiness which exists at all times. And there are two statements that I'd like us to look at in greater detail. The first statement is, to be happy is to be in tune with man's own nature. And the second statement, to experience true happiness, man very simply must give up being miserable. So you can see there's no problem. <laughs> now, the first statement, to be happy is to be in tune with man's own nature. And the key word we first look at is the word nature. Because what this statement is saying is that it's natural for mankind or the human being to be happy. If it is natural to be happy, it means that it doesn't require training doesn't require encouragement. You don't have to pay people to be happy. It is natural for the person to be happy. The second thing is that if it is your nature, that you can never be separated from it. If it is the nature of an orange to be an orange, you can never get the orangeness out of the orange and be left with an orange. You cannot separate the nature from the object itself. So, that would imply that we cannot be ever separated from our happiness. But we certainly can forego it. I.e., we can give up the experience of it. You don't actually lose it. It's just an appearance. And how is this possible? Well, it's like if your rich auntie in America left you a million pounds and the devious solicitor didn't bother to tell you, the facts are you are a millionaire or a millionaireess. But unaware of the existence of the million pounds, you live as you do live. <laughs> Which is probably vastly in excess of that. But anyway, so you live as a pauper. Yet the facts are you're a millionaire or millionaireess. The fact is that you're perfectly happy, but you live in a different state. If we're not aware of our true nature, we give up the benefit of it. We forego it. And so the question that each one of us has to face is, do we know our true nature? The desire for happiness is actually a proof of its naturalness. Nobody desires to have a headache. You don't wake up in the morning and say, oh gosh, I really hope a headache arises today. <laughs> and why do you not desire a headache? Because it's not natural for you. If a headache does arise, you desire to return to that natural state, which is free of headaches. But everybody desires to be happy. And you desire it because it's natural to you. And everybody else recognizes this as well. 
When you're happy, nobody ever comes up to you and says, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you're smiling. But people do come up to you when you're miserable and they say, what's wrong with you? So everybody recognizes that there's something wrong about being miserable and there's nothing wrong or unnatural about being happy. Now, stick with this word. If happiness is our nature, if it is natural, then it means it's simple, uncomplicated, and effortless. Like a natural smile. Now, you know the difference between a natural smile and an unnatural smile, or say a natural laugh and an unnatural laugh. You take a situation where you're in for a review with your boss. He or she cracks a terrible joke halfway through the review. <laughs> and you feel obliged. This, is a, this could cost me money, so I'm going to laugh. <laughs> and so you, you watch to make sure that he or she doesn't laugh longer or shorter than you. <laughs> You've got to stop it at exactly the same moment that they do. <laughs> Now, you know that effort to maintain that, particularly if the other person finds the joke hilarious. <laughs> what it's like for you to maintain that false laugh. It's full of effort. But if it's a natural laugh, there's no effort. How can we actually say that happiness is natural and therefore effortless? How could you possibly say that happiness is effortless? Well... When anybody goes to sleep, they become happy. In deep sleep, everybody is happy. And in deep sleep, you make no efforts. None at all. You don't wake up in the morning and say, I'm exhausted trying to sleep. <laughs> Nobody makes any effort in sleep. And yet, in that totally effortless state, every human being enjoys happiness. So it seems that when we get rid of all efforts, we're perfectly happy. And this is a very important point. That in the waking state, there's a whole variety of levels of happiness and misery. So people can say, I'm happier than you, or I'm more miserable than you. But in deep sleep, everybody enjoys happiness. Why do people enjoy different levels of happiness when awake? Because everybody makes different efforts. Nobody can deny that deep sleep produces happiness. Everybody looks forward to it. Nobody says, oh God, no. Here comes sleep again. Everybody tries to buy a nice bed. You try to make sure the temperature is right. All of these sorts of things. Because you want to sleep well. Why do you want to sleep well? Because in deep sleep, you enjoy happiness. Now, all we have to do is to manage this when we're awake. <laughs> if it is natural, if this happiness is natural, then it's not tiring. It does not take anything from you. Again, nobody says, I had an exhausting day today that was just constant happiness. <laughs> can you believe it? <laughs> right? But you can become tired by excitement. In fact, you will become tired by excitement. Because it is tiring. It's too much for the system. But nobody overdoses on happiness. If happiness is natural, then misery is unnatural. 
And if happiness is effortless, then misery is full of effort. You make efforts to be miserable. You make no efforts to be happy, in truth. Now, we think it's the opposite. We say, I work very hard at being happy. The fact of the matter is, in truth, it requires no effort to be happy. And in truth, it requires effort to be miserable. And you can try this. Try and go asleep and maintain your misery. Once the efforts go, the misery goes with it. We maintain our misery with our efforts. And this is the marvelous thing about sleep, is that it stops you making efforts. You have to let go of your misery. So nobody can be miserable all their life. But you have to let go each time you sleep. Now, as I said, it's hard to believe that we would actually make efforts to maintain our misery. What we do, and again, it's under ignorance, there's a story told of how you capture monkeys in India, which would be very useful to you if you want to change your profession. This is how you do it. That you bury a jar in the ground with the neck of the jar slightly exposed above the ground. And it's a narrow-necked jar. And you put uh, sweetmeat, or whatever things that monkeys like, into this jar. And the monkey smells the uh, existence of the sweetmeat and he puts his little fist inside the jar. Or he puts his little hand inside the jar. But once he's got sweetmeat, it becomes a little fist. And because it's a little fist, he can't get it out of the narrow-necked jar. And he screams and screams and screams that he's trapped. He's not trapped. He just won't let go. If he'd only let go, he'd be free. If we would only stop making efforts to be miserable, we'd be happy. And because it doesn't require effort, it means you can always be happy. If you look at the word miserable, it's an interesting word, because a shortened version of it is miser. What's a miser? A miser is not a person who has no money. Miser is a person who has money but won't spend it. And a miserable person is a person who's happy but won't experience it or won't show it or won't spend it. And then to continue with this word, if it is natural, it must underlie all human actions. So if you ask a saint, why does he pray? He will say, because it makes me happy. If you ask a bank robber, why do you rob banks? He says, because I believe it will lead to happiness. Whatever actions one undertakes, one undertakes in the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness is not confined to the good. It is natural for every human being, in every action, to pursue happiness. I think this is the final point from this. Where is this nature? This nature of happiness. And like all natures, it's on the inside. When 
you ask somebody to describe an experience of happiness, they say, happiness just arose up inside of me. People don't say, happiness just rose up outside of me. There it was, standing two feet in front of me. Everybody describes it arising up within. Now, if happiness arises up within, where should one look for it? It would make sense to look within. It would look for its source. Happiness always arises within. But if we examine our daily lives and we say, well, where do I look for happiness? I'm always looking for it outside of myself. On continental beaches, sun tanning myself, all those sorts of things. Always external to myself. But happiness is within. If we think it is outside of myself, then we will believe that we can possess it. If we believe we can possess it, unfortunately we believe we can lose it. But if it's natural, it's not a possession. And it can't be lost, because it's your very being. And when is this happiness possible? As happiness arises from within you, it makes sense that you have to be in contact with your true self if you're going to connect with it. If there's no contact with your true nature, then there will be no experience of happiness. And when can man make contact with his true nature? Well, he has three possible times to live in. He can live in the past, the present, or the future. Now, if the mind has wandered to the past, then you're not connected with yourself, but with memory. That's the connection, with memory. And if the memories are bad, then you enjoy the pain a second time, or a third time, or a fourth time, depending on how many times you wish to repeat it in your mind. Which makes an awful lot of sense. <laughs> if the memories are good, well, then you get a pale shadow of true happiness in the form of a pleasant sensation as you reminisce about a good past event. If the mind wanders to the future, then the mind feeds on expectation and its offspring, which are excitement and anxiety. Excitement if it's a good event, anxiety if it's a perceived bad event. But what the mind does, it postpones the opportunity for happiness now by wandering in imagination. In the present moment, you connect with yourself, i.e. you connect with your happiness. There actually is no misery in the present moment. You could try it right now. You could try and stay in the present moment, try to become miserable right now. From where I'm looking, some of you have achieved this. <laughs> Not trap. But you could try it. You could try and say, okay, I'm going to become miserable now. But you have to stay in the present moment. You just can't do it. It's not possible to be miserable now. The mind has to go into the past or project into the future, and then it can create misery. 
happiness is only possible now because happiness exists now. As one person said, it is only possible to live happy ever after on a moment-to-moment basis. And just another fact about happiness is that happiness makes life complete. It's the only thing that makes life complete. If you say to somebody who's got a new car, is there anything else you want? They say, yes, there is, whatever it is. But if they're happy and you ask them, are they happy? They say, yes. And say, is there anything else you want? By definition, they have to say no, because they're happy. So it's the one thing that makes life complete. Now, a final indicator that this happiness that we're speaking about is natural is that it's not the outcome of anything. You can't go to some event and say, I will be happy. It will definitely yield happiness to me. But I'm sure we all have had those experiences where just in a flash, for some inexplicable reason, happiness just wells up inside you. Just make it, you could be waiting for a bus, you could say, this is the sort of thing I hate. And yet, for some inexplicable reason, happiness wells up inside of you. If happiness does come from outside of you, if it is the outcome of anything, then it is limited. You can only get a pint out of a pint bottle. So if happiness comes from anything, it is limited to that thing. And the second point is that if it does come from a thing, since that thing is transient, why it's born, matures and dies, then happiness is transient. But if you ask people, what are you searching for? Nobody's searching for a transient happiness. Nobody says, I'm looking for a happiness that arises on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday, and to hell with the rest of the, the week. And nobody says, I'm, I'm searching for a limited happiness. I'm not greedy when it comes to happiness. We're all totally greedy when it comes to happiness. We want limitless happiness. So we want happiness to be permanent, and we want it to be limitless. And yet we look for it in things which aren't permanent, and which are limited. So that might explain why we don't find it. Therefore, what we all want in truth is a happiness which is not derived from anything. And the logical conclusion is that we all want a happiness which is internal, a happiness which arises within myself. We may look for it externally, but what we want is an internal, independent happiness. Why does everybody seek this happiness? Why is it natural for everybody to seek this happiness? And the reason is because it is our nature. You actually are the source of your own happiness. So let us summarize so far. Happiness is natural, effortless, complete, inner, independent of objects, people and circumstances. It underlies all our existence and it exists now for each one of us. 
And therefore we can be happy everywhere and in all circumstances. Happiness is actually there, but we can't express it. It's like somebody being struck dumb. And I don't know whether you've ever had the experience of caring for somebody who's had a stroke. And sometimes when people get a stroke, they lose the power of speech. But if you've ever cared for somebody who's had a stroke and they've lost the power of speech, what you recognize in them is an immense frustration as they try to speak. What is the frustration? The frustration is they know the words. They know what they want to say, but the machinery won't work properly. So, albeit there is this knowledge of what is required, the machinery won't express it. My father actually did have a stroke. And he was the sort of man who used to uh, love his whiskey. So, after the stroke, we used to bring in bottles of whiskey and see what he would like. It was a very bad stroke. And for a long while, it took efforts before he could manage to get the word drink out. He'd say he'd want to drink. So we would pour him a little whiskey. He said, no, there's violent hand movement. And it took us about four months to work out that he wanted a Fanta. My father never drank Fanta. <laughs> never. <laughs> he knew he wanted Fanta. And we guessed he wanted whiskey. Well, what is wrong with our machinery that we fail to express our happiness? And the key is in the word tune. To be happy is to be in tune with man's own nature. And you know this if you have a transistor radio and you can have, say, RTE1, and let's assume it's capable of being heard or picked up all over Ireland. But only those whose transistors are tuned to it actually get the message. So if you're not in tune with your own nature, you don't receive the message of happiness. And we look at that later. So the second sentence. To experience true happiness, a man very simply must give up being miserable. And as was said before, that happiness is perfect and complete, and when you are happy, you want for nothing. And because it's perfect and complete, it can't be worked on. If you have a room that's, say, perfectly decorated, there's no more work left. And happiness is perfect and complete, and therefore it cannot be worked on. Now, misery is imperfect and incomplete, and therefore it can be worked on. Now, we all work on our happiness, but in fact we should work on our misery. You just work on reducing it. It's a bit like dieting in the emotional world. You just diet away the misery. And there's plenty of work there. Look at all the biases and the prejudices, the likes and dislikes that cause you misery. All the things that drive you insane. I have to give this lecture next week on patience. It's a real challenge for somebody like me. And I found myself abroad with the family in the last couple of weeks. And I thought, well, if I am giving this talk on patience, I better practice it. I better know what it actually means. 
And I think the supreme test was when I was in the supermarket and there were these plastic bags. You know these bags which refuse to open? That's impossible to tell, at least I can't tell which end is which. And to be able to stay there patiently. Your wife is very sympathetically looking at you. The kids want to leave the supermarket. You're saying, no, it's all right. I'll find the opening. <laughs> Think of all the things that annoy you. Imagine if you let them go. He just stopped being annoyed at a plastic bag that wouldn't open for you. Think of the list of things that annoy you every single day. Couldn't we work on those? Couldn't we sort of overcome the, the bag syndrome? Well, we can work on letting our misery go, just like the monkey can let go of the sweetmeat in the jar. The fundamental point is that you cannot make yourself happy. And you know this if you're married to somebody. You certainly can't make them happy. They make up their own minds as to whether they're going to be happy or not. You can't make them. You also can't make yourself happy. But you can make yourself miserable. Sometimes this is the career for some people. They make themselves miserable all day long. Just as you can make yourself miserable, you can stop making yourself miserable. You could stop right now. You could stop making yourself miserable right now. And then never start again. And if you never started again, you'd be happy forever. You only have to stop right now. And then never start again. But what you find is this is, we go to bed at night, uh, there are all sorts of worries about overdrafts, and children doing exams or whatever it is, and you absolutely gladly put it all down. You let it all go, so that you can sleep soundly, and you sleep beautifully and happily. And when you wake up the next morning, you pick it all up again. We think that we get dressed, you know, by putting on a suit or a dress or whatever it is. But we dress emotionally as well. You're normally up about five minutes and you're an overdrawn person. <laughs> Takes you, you know, two seconds to put on your trousers and about five minutes to put on your overdraft. <laughs> and you wear it all day. If you're very sharp, you can say to somebody, are you overdrawn by any chance? <laughs> you can see them wearing it on their face. But you can stop being miserable right now and then never start again. Well, let us look at an analogy. If you could imagine three light bulbs and just assume, for the sake of this example, that they're each a hundred watt light bulbs. So they shine with the same intensity. But due to neglect, one of them has a very thick coat of dust over it. And another one has a very a light coat of dust, and the other one is kept clean. And so, if you've never seen the three of them without their dust, 
But you now only know them as one with a heavy coat of dust, one with a medium coat or a light coat of dust, and one clean. You think that the one without any dust is the brightest light bulb. And you think the one on the left is actually a very dark light bulb. It actually is not a 100-watt bulb. It has a lesser light than the bright bulb. But in fact, they each shine with exactly the same brightness, the same intensity. But the dust on the outside absorbs some of the light, some of the brightness. The possibility is that each person in this room shines with exactly the same intensity, enjoys exactly the same happiness. But there are different levels of covering on our nature. Some of us need to be damp dusted, spring cleaned. Now, if this analogy is true, the questions that follow are, how is this dust collected? How does a human being collect dust on his or her true nature? And then, how is it removed? Can you get rid of it? How do we become miserable when in fact we're happy? How do we stop being miserable and restore our happiness? How do the happy become miserable? And remember that misery has to be maintained. You have to make efforts to become miserable. So who in their right mind would do this? How could a human being set out with efforts to become unhappy? And it's obvious that no reasonable human being would do this. So this is an indictment on all of us. <laughs> no human being would do this. The only explanation is that we make a mistake. Just like nobody sets out to be an alcoholic, nobody sets out to be a, a drug addict, and nobody sets out to become miserable. But some people do become drug addicts, and some become alcoholics, and a number become miserable. Well, what is this mistake that we make? The mistake that we make is that we forget who we truly are. And because you forget, you forego. You don't lose who you are, but you lose the benefit of who you are. Now, this seems crazy. How can it happen? And you may be familiar with this experience. In this case, it's an example about a lady. Sometimes a lady can have a necklace around her neck. And she forgets it's there. And she thinks, my God, where's my necklace? So she searches her jewelry box, safe where all the other jewelry is kept. She searches everywhere, looking for the necklace. And she experiences the misery of it being lost. And in the end, she will ask the help of friends. Could somebody help find the necklace? And in the end, of course, some half-intelligent person spots the necklace on the neck and points it out to her. And her experience is, is as if she found her necklace. She's experienced losing it, and now she's experienced finding it. And if she tells all her friends, they say they're all so happy for her. <laughs> now, it's all in imagination. The necklace was never lost, never found, 
all in imagination. This is actually how the human being becomes miserable. He forgets his true nature and he thinks he's lost it. And from a very early age, he strives to be happy. And of course, adults tell him things like, don't expect to be perfect to be happy. You'll only be disappointed, like I am. <laughs> Imagine having a parent like that. You too can be disappointed like me. <laughs> now, there are some saving graces in all of this. It's not possible for the human being to say that he doesn't exist. You could try this. You can go up to somebody in the street and say, I don't exist. <laughs> not possible. Because the proclamation of your non-existence is the proclamation of your existence. So nobody has any confusion at all about their own existence. Everybody's absolutely sure about it. If I turned out the lights and made a completely dark room, said, are you all still here? And we'd say, yes, absolutely sure of it. Still here. We're all absolutely sure of our own existence. But we don't know what we are. We know that we are. We don't know what we are. And nature abhors a vacuum. It doesn't like this non-knowledge bit. And so, what the human being does at a very early age is forgetting its true self, it creates an identity. So the word identity is a very interesting word because it comes from two words, id and entity. And so to have an identity, you must have an id and you must have an entity. And the id is who you truly are. And the entity is anything. It's any object. So people say things like, I'm a Ford owner. <laughs> they don't make such things. They make Fords and they make human beings. But a Ford owner is a human being who's identified with his car. If the car breaks down, he's miserable. <laughs> they don't issue Kleenex for the car, just for the owners. Now, the human being takes on this identity at a very early age, which is one of the unfortunate things, because they have no discrimination. They will take up any identity. You can tell an intelligent child you're absolutely stupid. And out of love for you, it will accept your statement. And for the rest of the life, think it's stupid. Anyway, we take on these identities. If we identify with the body, then we go around saying things like, I'm young, mature, getting even more mature. <laughs> I'm old, I'm tall, I'm small, I'm ugly, I'm handsome. I love pleasure. That's the sort of person who I am. Only the body loves pleasure. And I hate pain. Only bodies hate pain. Youth is preferable to old age and I fear death. Just because I think I am this assembly of molecules. It may not be the body that I particularly identify with. I may identify with the mind. 
And then I'm either stupid, intelligent, clear, confused, inferior, superior. And I have preferences. I like things and I dislike things. And my preferences are very important to me. I don't like people sitting in my chair. I don't even like asking to get out of the chair. I like it to be vacant when I come into the room. <laughs> like a prune. <laughs> and this mind which has all these likes sets up impossible things. Like it approaches a traffic light. It says, I hope it remains green. And you get through it and you feel happy. <laughs> Another 45 seconds saved in your life. <laughs> well, all these are very important. Golf shots. Whether God exists. They can be equally important to a human being. Some human beings talk more about golf shots than they do about God. An egg that's not done to your satisfaction <laughs> can reduce you to misery. It has to be a four-minute egg or else I don't like it. And you see people, they're, they're very happy, they're away on holidays, they're just having an egg for breakfast, they order the four-minute egg, they get a three-minute egg, the whole day is ruined. <laughs> Completely ruined. Now you just imagine, an egg is about that size. It's a small, runny, inoffensive object. And you've got an entire human being who's capable of buying thousands of them. And he loses his happiness because of the state of the egg. If you identify with the mind, then we do not experience what is really there. We experience the thoughts in our mind. So, if there's a tree stump, it's dark night. If you're a scared type of person, you will imagine it to be a ghost. If you're a thief, you'll imagine it to be a policeman. If you're a nice, friendly sort of person, you'll imagine it to be a neighbor. You experience what's in your mind. If your mind is grey, the world is grey. If the mind is pink, well then the world is pink. When people say, it's a miserable rain today, what they're talking about is themselves. Rain has no emotional quality at all just little drops of water. Miserable rain is a miserable person looking at water. And those things are not so bad because you get your good days and your bad days. However, if you practice them long enough, eventually you think you are your ideas. And if they're small ideas, you think you're a small person. And if they're big ideas, you think you're better than everybody else. If the idea dominates, it goes inward and it forms a second nature. It's like a hard covering of dust. You don't need damp dusting at that stage. It's different nature. And what happens is you become a type of person. You become a shy person. You become an extrovert. You become an arrogant person. Or you become a fearful person. And so this idea, which is now taking up residence, forming a second nature, now dominates your life. It starts off as an idea, 
and it becomes a person. And uh, there are two stories, one which is amusing and the other one which is less amusing. When I was about 21 or 22, I was going out with this girl and her father related this event to me. He said that when he was about five, he had been brought down the country to meet his uncle and auntie. And this was a big occasion, so he you know, had a little suit on and his hair was greased back and washed behind the ears and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, auntie and uncle made a big fuss over him, told him how much more freckles he had this time and how much bigger he was than before, and all these wonderful statements that depress you. <laughs> anyway, it came around to afternoon tea. Um, he had an older brother, aged about seven, and the auntie asked the older brother, would you like some bread and jam? And the older brother said that he didn't like jam. And the auntie was very surprised at this. And a young boy didn't like jam. And created a big fuss over this little fellow to try and satisfy whatever he wanted. Anyway, he eventually was all right, munching away. And she turned to the younger boy, aged five. And she said, would you like some jam? And he had watched the whole incident. He said, I'm onto something good here. <laughs> he, said, uh, he said, I don't like jam either. And he got his little fuss and all that sort of stuff. And what he told me was he didn't eat jam for 40 years. <laughs> and whenever anybody asked him, which declined over the years, but whenever anybody asked him, do you like jam? He said, no, no, I, I don't like jam. And he forgot. He actually forgot. And when I met him, he was in his 50s, and he said he's trying to make up for us ever since. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, both sides of the bread and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> now, you might think, well, to go through life without jam is not exactly a tragedy. Uh, and of course, if it was confined to jam, it would be all right. But it's not like that. We take emotional states on that we can never take off. This other story, which is the more serious story, but a lady said to me that when she was about four or five, she saw her older brother was about 11, and he was frowning. He was worried about something, and he was frowning. And she thought this was fascinating. This facial expression was fascinating, the furrowed brow, you know, the hangdog look. So she went upstairs and practiced it in the mirror, practiced looking depressed and being worried. And if you, I'm not going to name this lady, some of you may know her, but the one thing that everybody says about her is she always looks worried. She always worries. It was just a facial expression, that was all. But you wear it long enough and it becomes like you know, the man in the iron mask. Well, we become our ideas. Some people become businessmen. It's a dreadful thing for a human being to become. <laughs> it means he eats sandwiches in a hurry, standing up. He has no time. He's tired. And he thinks he is it because he's got a suit. Electronic gadgets which help his failing memory. All of these things. Now if you ask him to put on a pirate's outfit and gave him a sword and said, do you think you're a pirate? He'd say, no, I'm just dressed up. Do you think you're a businessman? Absolutely. 
fact, an important one. <laughs> and if you become a businessman, then your mannerisms have to change. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you sit. Well, Ralph Waldo Emerson has this marvellous description of what happens to man. Like it reads, man is thus metamorphosed into a thing, into many things. The planter, who is man sent out into the field to gather food, is seldom cheered by any idea of the true dignity of his ministry. He seeks his bushel and his cart and nothing beyond, and sinks into the farmer instead of man on the farm. The tradesman scarcely ever gives an ideal work to his work, but is ridden by the routine of his craft, and the soul is subject to the dollar. The priest becomes a form, the attorney a statute book, the mechanic a machine, the sailor a rope on a ship. Well, who of us experienced life as man in his or her full potential? Do we not experience life as husband, wife, son, daughter, employee, employer? But if you want to experience true happiness, you experience life as man. The fruits of this identification are misery. Believing my false identity to be true, I thus forego my true identity. And I forego my true nature of happiness. Forgetting that I am pure, perfect, and complete, I desire to be pure, perfect, and complete. Thinking I am the body, I desire pleasure and I avoid pain. Thinking I am the mind, I pursue likes and avoid dislikes. I want permanent happiness, I want total happiness, but I look for it outside of myself in the limited and the transient. And in desperation, I try to make the transient permanent. I try to keep the body young, preoccupied with my state of health. I want permanent title to my possessions, like 999-year leaves. I have a life expectancy of 72 years, but I want a 999-year lease. I want security of employment. I want permanency of relationships. I don't want anybody to die young. I want everything to go on forever, just like in the movies. And in this frantic search for permanence in the transient, I confuse pleasure with happiness, learning with knowledge, and activity with life. And because all this pursuit of happiness is amongst the transient, my happiness is transient happy on Monday and unhappy on Tuesday. The identification with body and mind means that I'm separate from everything and everybody else. Now there's so much outside of me, separate from me. The belief is then confirmed that the source of all my misery is outside of me. If I could only change my environment, then I could become happy. So if I could have a new car new house, whatever it is, I could just change the outside world, then I could become happy. And because of this, the chase is on. 
desire is inflamed. But the tragedy of desire is that desires are not satisfied. They multiply and multiply and multiply. The more you satisfy them, the more they grow. It's like putting fat on the fire to try and push it out. From desire you get fear. Fear of losing what you've already attained or of not getting what you want to attain. From desire comes anger. Anybody who frustrates your desire. From desire comes the need to control. Happiness is so important to me, I need to control my happiness. So I need to control my children, I need to control my wife, I need laws to control my employers, all these things so that I can control my happiness. Because happiness is outside of me, I endlessly compare my life with others. Do they have a 1.6 GL or is it a 2 litre? But I have the sliding roof. (laughs) (laughs) And competitiveness sets in. With competitiveness comes happiness at the expense of others. I'll even lie and cheat. Sometimes for my family's sake. So that I can feel good inside. But still lying and cheating. And with this desire comes the distortion of all values. So that if you really, really value something, it causes you as much misery as it does happiness. You can't create a wave without a hollow. If tickets to the opera will make you extremely happy, then losing them will make you extremely miserable. Have you ever noticed how much misery we put up with in our pursuit of happiness? We're like marathon runners. Do you ever see a happy marathon runner? (laughs) All that pain. As Marsilio Ficino says, although movement has to be stilled for there to be rest, Yet these men are forever beginning new and different movements in order that they may one day come to rest. They accumulate wealth as though they would never die and misuse pleasures as though they would die each day. So how are we to free ourselves of all this? How do we remove the dust, eliminate the misery and regain our true and substantial happiness? Well, it's a matter of saying, how did it arise, and then reverse it. All of this has arisen from forgetting who we are, and the solution is to remember who you are, in truth. How does one increase the memory of who am I in truth? And you increase it with awareness. With awareness comes memory of truth. You become aware of the body growing old rather than me growing old. I am the same who occupied a baby's body, who occupied a child's body, who occupied a youth's body, and who occupies a mature man's body. It's the same occupant. How do we increase awareness in a practical way? The strongest 
the most practical of all means to increase awareness is through meditation. There's no more powerful technique known to man, no more efficient technique known to man as regards increasing the levels of awareness than meditation. And the second factor is to undo the lies in the mind that we have come to accept. Lies that we are a body, or we are the mind, that we are limited, fulfillment of desires will make me happy, happiness is external to myself, that happiness is dependent on circumstances, like I'll be happy when the children grow up and go away, and all those wonderful things. And the lie that you strive to be happy in the future. One of the worst lies that I put up with the pain now in order to be happy in the future. All these lies that we tell ourselves have to be undone. And the best way to undo the lies which we tell ourselves is to study the words of the wise. Because they don't lie. They tell you the truth about yourself. And uh, in order to help us, the best way is to study it in the company of others who are interested in real happiness. So with these two, meditation and the study of the words of the wise, in good company, one's natural state of true happiness can be restored and will be restored with the right levels. And in order to leave you with something, a little discipline, which works if you practice it, I want to put something to you that if I said to you, would you sell your happiness? If I said to you, I'd offer you a pound if you give me your happiness. Does anybody want a pound? No. If I say a hundred pounds, you can have a hundred pounds, but you must forego your happiness. Nobody will take the hundred pounds. If I say a thousand or a million, it makes no difference. So every one of you right now would say, I wouldn't sell my happiness for a billion pounds. And yet every day we sell it over and over again. Somebody takes a car park space of ours, we sell our happiness. Somebody pulls in ahead of us, we sell our happiness. The queue is a little bit longer in the news agency than normal, and we sell our happiness. They're sold out of the examiner, and we sell our happiness. Somebody forgot your birthday, and we sell our happiness. So the truth of the matter is we sell it every day for nothing. For absolutely nothing. Some people will be selling it right now for a cup of tea. <laughs> I know which ones they are. <laughs> the ones who laughed are the ones who are selling. <laughs> if he would only shut up, I could become happy again. <laughs> well, why not make a decision right now? And it's possible. You could make the decision right now that you will never, ever, ever sell your happiness again. You won't sell it to idiots. You won't sell it to the ignorant. You won't sell it to the arrogant. You won't sell it to the rain. You won't sell it to the egg. You just won't sell your happiness because you love it so much. If you could really make that decision, and you can, 
that you'll never sell it again. But you have it right now. Just don't sell it. less dramatic examples than the ones you have chosen, you sometimes get somebody who is uh, terminally ill and the body is absolutely racked with pain, but there's no loss of happiness. That well, but when no you, one's daughter's rape or somebody coming in having been violently violent and so on. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm glad you understand that one. That's very yes. good. <laughs> Maybe we can talk later. What you discover, if you examine our concept, that our concepts of good and bad are, are very arbitrary, are very personal, and they're all dependent on certain assumptions. We never examine the assumptions. So people think it's a terrible thing to die. Now, how do you know? Has anybody come back and said it's awful? How do you know this is not terrible? And it's better on the other side. Everybody moves to a new job in the belief that it's going to be better. How do you know that moving out of here is not better? Out of this human existence. It's all an assumption. And what you'll find is that we take events at a particular point in time and we say, that's the end and that's bad. And I just want to make up a light example of it. Assume that I have to go to an office, to my office, and I've got a very important report to deliver to the board of directors. And I've just bought a new set of tyres for the car, and I set off at a reasonable amount of time to get there early. And lo and behold, I get a puncture in the outside lane to add drama to it. It's the outside lane. Right. So eventually I get the car in 
And I'm wearing a white shirt that day because I'm most impressive when I wear my white shirt. But it's not the ideal shirt for changing attire with. And I can't help noticing that people going by all have ball tires, but no punctures. And I have brand new tires, yet I've got this puncture. It's just unbelievable. And life is unfair, and this is a bad event. This is bad. So if my wife rang me, and I had possession of mine to actually speak to her at this point, I, I would say, it's a terrible day. Anyway, I eventually get this tire fixed. I've rolled up my sleeves to hide the oil stains, and I proceed into work. And I've arrived late. In fact, I'm the only one that day who arrived late. And the entire building is engulfed with flames. Everybody who arrived early is dead. <laughs> Burnt to a cinder. And I open the boot of the car, kiss the, uh, the puncture tire, <laughs> I say, thank you, Lord, thank you. And my wife rings up and I say, it's a good day. In fact, it's a fantastic day. Anyway, as I'm conversing with her and expressing my relief, they bring out all these carcass remains. I see these little shimmery things sort of rising up from around the heart, parting of the clouds and these things all disappear up there. And I look up to heaven and I say, what's going on? And it's a sincere question and therefore God has to answer it. And he says, Shane, I'm taking these to eternal happiness. And I say, what about me? He says, well, you need to look for a new job. <laughs> and my wife rings at that moment. <laughs> and I say, it's a terrible day. Now, how are you going to know whether it's good or bad? you keep judging at a particular point. Now, and I'm just going to avoid raping or something like that. People get terribly emotional about these things. But just to take another incident. An event is bad if you learn nothing from it. And again, just to take a personal incident. As I said, my father got a stroke and I was 28 at the time. And I get this phone call. We told your father's had a stroke and he's in the hospital in Dublin. And I go in. I went to this public ward, because he was brought into a public ward, and it seemed like a mile long. I could see this man lying in bed. It was a very severe stroke, so his whole face was completely distorted. As if you've ever seen somebody with a stroke, it's like being kicked by a mule. And his eyes are rolling around like the village idiot, and his tongue is hanging out. And the sheer severity of the scene just stopped me in my tracks. I thought, oh, God, no. I had joined the School of Philosophy about a year. A little voice inside of me said, make up your mind, Shane. Either the philosophy is true or what you see is true. Make up your mind now. And I made up my mind that the philosophy was true. And I've never, ever, ever doubted it. So I don't regret that incident. I don't wish it on my father, but I don't regret it. As far as I was concerned, it was a magnificent moment for Shane Mulhall. I had to make a stand in life in adverse circumstances as to what I absolutely believed in. And the strength of that has never left me. So I don't regret it. 
I think it was a marvellous moment in my life. And it's not just a marvellous moment for Shane at all, because what I would like to think is that when people come and talk to me about their parents having strokes or dying or something like that, that one can, through one's own experience, in some way relieve the burden for them. So, you can make good of adversity. And there's a marvellous story from the Indian tradition, which is a lady uh, called Kunti. And she's one of the most famous ladies in the Indian tradition. And she was a devotee of Krishna. Krishna knew his death was coming. And because Kunti had been so devoted to him, he granted her a boon. He said, you may have what you wish. And she said, uh, grant me adversity. And even though Krishna was all wise, he felt this a bit confusing. How could somebody wish for adversity? And he said to her, why do you seek adversity? And she said, because I only thought of you in adversity. Our values in life are not true. They're all based on assumptions. Again, just to tell you a sort of a, a humorous story, if you, it's a making up story. If you can imagine a man called Smith and he's brought to hospital, chest pains, and the doctors examine him and they do a few tests and they come back to him and say some uh, terrible news, Mr. Smith, you have three minutes to live. And there's a phone by the bedside, and at that point in time, uh, the phone rings, and it's the bank manager who's traced him to the hospital, as bank managers would. <laughs> and uh, he says to him, Mr. Smith, you've exceeded your limit, and I have to return one of your checks. And Mr. Smith says, I absolutely understand. You have your job to do, and that's fine. Do as you have to. And then the son comes in and he says to him, Dad, uh, you know the way I borrowed the car last night? Well, I, I was just driving too fast. Absolutely stupid. I crashed the car. It's a white lot. And he said, look, son, don't worry about this. You all make mistakes. I made some mistakes. You made them. You need to learn from them. But don't be concerned. It's more to life than a car. And then his wife comes in and she says, look, you know the way you've always been concerned about whether I'd be happy if you did happen to predecease me. I think it's important to tell you that I have just fallen in love with a man next door <laughs> who's a widower to make it all very nice. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, in fact, he loves me. After a decent period has elapsed, you're gone, we, we're going to marry, and I believe we will be perfectly happy. And he said, that is an immense I am so happy that it's worked out well for you. It's a long treatment. It's a core treatment. And the doctor comes back and he says, just a second, he says, do you spell your name with an I or a Y? That's the wrong Mr. Smith. We've got a return check, a crash car and a wife who loves the next door neighbor. <laughs> now, the reactions will be totally reversed. Well, what are your values? How do you live today? Do you live today as if you're going to live forever? Imagine if you made this the most precious day. What would you do with it? 
What would you allow to upset you? What would upset you? So, what each one of us needs to do, and don't, if I may say so, just be gentle on yourself. Don't take the rape situations. Take, and again, I don't want to take away from situations like that, but take the, the small recurring things with which you lose your happiness. The irritations which arise each day. The little clashes of people closest to you. And let them go. And what you'll find is your happiness will grow stronger and stronger. And as it grows stronger and stronger, it will take more and more for you to lose it. And the day may come that you can't lose it. Nothing will be able to take your happiness away that's become so strong. Anybody else? Nightmares when you're sleeping. What about them? No, absolutely. That's why I, I said deep sleep. In deep sleep, there isn't any dreaming. So nightmares is a sort of a state of affairs where the impressions gathered during the day are not let go. So the mind continues to play with what it remembers of things in a jumbled up fashion, perhaps. The real secret is to get the mind to let go to let go and we often don't let go we sort of go into sleep while we're still thinking about things and then the mind continues to play with them but the real secret is to let everything go it can be a very good thing to tell the mind to take its rest tell it not to dream tell it to take its rest it's like sometimes you can say to the mind you are to wake up at 5 o'clock. And if you put the alarm on for 5.01, the mind does it. It just does it. How does it do that? It can hold something like that. And so you can instruct the mind. So if you do suffer from nightmares, then and this is a habit, then you can instruct the mind to let go. But the sleep that I was talking about was deep sleep, which is a dreamless sleep. And there are those times you wake up in the morning, you know, I didn't dream last night. And it's a different type of sleep. It's more, more, more sleep. And you elaborate Yes. Well, the example that I gave was that if you take the tree stump, and it's not complete pitch dark, but it's sort of a shadowy darkness, then you can imagine it to be a myriad of things. But in the bright daylight, you would see it to be a tree stump. You couldn't make an error. So in the analogy, bright daylight is equivalent to a high level of awareness, and the dusk or the darkened thing is equivalent to a low level of awareness. Now, what meditation does is it removes the dust that's gathered. It allows the mind to come to a deep, deep rest. What sleep does is, well, as I said, say you're worried at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock about an overdraft or about the car, how much it will cost to fix it or something. What you tend to find is when you wake up the next morning, the same worries and concerns reappear very, very quickly. So albeit you've taken a break from the worries, you haven't dissolved them. 
Now, what meditation actually does is dissolve them. It actually dissolves them. It can dissolve all sorts of emotional states like fear, the tendency towards anger, all sorts of things. It's like if I said to you, do you think it's important to, to wash the body? You'd say yes. Only little children don't believe in this. Everybody else believes it's important to wash the body for a couple of reasons, for social reasons, obviously, and also to maintain the health of the body because if it becomes dirty, it's more prone to disease. And if you ask people, they would say you should wash it once a day. And that makes absolute sense. And you wash the body because you use it. And the more you use it, the greater the need to wash it. And if you say to someone, well, do you use your mind? You'd say yes. You'd say, well, how do you wash your mind? And you say, but do you use your heart during the day? How do you wash your heart? What's the mechanism for making the heart clean again? And a clean heart is a heart where you meet somebody that did you some wrong years ago, and you meet them afresh. Do you, you know the situation like in a relationship? Say, for example, now this is not absolutely true, but I mean, it has happened once or twice in the marriage. My wife would get annoyed with me. She's very clear about Shows you what an unreasonable woman she is. But anyway, she would get annoyed with me. And she has a superb memory. And it would be something like I'd come home late one day and she says, you're always late. And I say, no, I'm not. And she can remember a hundred other times that I was late and then there's other things thrown in that I never visit her mother and, you know, a whole series of things. Now, what you find is they are unresolved issues which are sort of gathered and they lie dormant and they're taken out as ammunition when appropriate. But if they were cleansed from the heart, all you would meet is somebody who's late now. And what you find is this, is that we don't clean our heart out, we don't clean our minds out. There are ideas gathered which are false, like the jam story. But there are lots and lots of these ideas. And meditation just has the power, by asking the mind, in, in the case of the meditation at the school practice, by asking the mind to attend to a single word, the mind becomes absolutely concentrated. And in becoming concentrated, it goes extremely deep. And it reaches a stage where there's absolute stillness. And in that stillness, it's a bit like, if you could imagine disturbed water, and it's all sand in it. You can't see through the water, because the movement is causing all the sand to move up and down all the levels of the water. But if the water could become still, the sand would just sink to the bottom. So if you can get the mind to sink into a deep rest while awake, all the normal agitations and unresolved issues sink down, and they do dissolve. So that's why I, I recommended meditation. Does that answer the question? Yeah. Ms. McCall, uh, for somebody who isn't meditating, meditation, I believe, to be the most powerful. Prayer is a wonderful thing. What is said about the difference between meditation and prayer is that meditation is incredibly efficient. So you have to pray for an awful lot longer than you have to meditate. <laughs> so if you're interested in efficiency, 
I'm not saying one is a substitute for the other. You can also work on your heart. So you can work on acceptance, on letting things go, on the development of patience. For example, if you watch a teacher with a child or a mother with a child, the amount of patience is remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. Say, no, 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 cat, just spell cat. And the child says, D. E G no 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 C A T okay I think I have it D A T now you're nearly there keep going and you watch a mother with that and she can do that and so can a teacher now when your husband has been that thick <laughs> we are so unforgiving now it's not a matter of treating him or her like a child but where is the compassion? You know, people often say, so-and-so made me angry. They were annoyed and they said something to me that made me angry. Well, the true response for a human being is to feel compassion to an angry person or for an angry person. If somebody has lost their reason, one has compassion for them, not anger towards them. You don't meet anger with anger. If you meet anger with love, it dissolves the anger. And there's the famous story from the Buddha. A man went to the Buddha, who was sitting under a tree silently, and the man went to him and he abused him verbally. Right? So he said all sorts of dreadful things to the Buddha. And the Buddha sat there silently, pitying the man's folly. And eventually, as you notice, if you don't respond to this, the man ran out of things to say. So he was reduced to silence. Now all of this is very, very significant. He was reduced to silence. When he was reduced to silence, the Buddha spoke. The Buddha said to him, he said, My son, if you have a present and you offer it to another and the other refuses to accept it, with whom will it remain? And the man said, It will remain with the giver. The Buddha said, well, I refuse to accept thy abuse and request thee to keep it to thyself. And as sure as night follows day and the shadow follows the substance, evil will overcome the evildoer without fail. And the man went away ashamed and he came back and took refuge in the Buddha. It's just brilliant. It's so brilliant. You see, what he saw was a man who had lost his happiness. What you do is you silently wait. Teach him the lesson. And effectively restore him to happiness. But we meet anger with anger. This is a world of tit for tat. You can take it as Christ's message or any message. But it's always turn the other cheek. Resist not evil. Absorb. Strong can always carry the weak. If somebody gives you verbal abuse, absorb it. This is what the earth does. It's the most amazing thing. You can take, take all those things where you gather rubbish and does something that turns into earth again or a compost. Thank you. Think what the earth does. You can get all this dreadful rubbish that you wouldn't put into your mouth. You can gather it. You can bury it. You go back 
ten years later. And what is the earth done? It has separated it all again. Separated the concentrations. Diluted it all out so it's all perfect again. It's like dismantling a bomb. If you bring all the components together, it's a terrible thing. But if you separate out all the components, it can do no harm. When somebody's angry with you, you absorb the anger. Let it spread out. And then if there's an opportunity to say something, you can say it. And in that case, anger is not met with anger, but you relieve the other person of their misery. There's a wonderful story told of Mr. McLaren, who's the man who founded the school. And he was just a remarkable man. But he used to suffer terribly at the misery of the world. Terribly. And he asked the Shankaracharya, who's the man that the school went to, with his questions, the man from India. And he asked him about this suffering. And the Shankaracharya said to him, there is compassion under ignorance and compassion under wisdom. And compassion under ignorance is where you become miserable at the misery of another. So somebody comes along and tells you a terrible story and you become absolutely upset by it. All that has happened is that the misery has been multiplied. Does that make sense? And he said, the other way to meet compassion, which is compassion under knowledge, or compassion under wisdom, is to meet the misery of the other and to be moved by that misery to remove it from the other, which is just magnificent. Never sell your happiness. Never, ever, ever sell it. It's your most precious gift, and you can offer it to everybody. It will overcome everything, just as the silence of the Buddha overcame the abuse of the other man. Happiness radiates. You cannot keep it to yourself. You might even become attractive. <laughs> People will be attracted to you because you radiate happiness. You only put up with miserable people for so long. India, and you think that you can suffer. <laughs> I'm fed up trying to make you happy. <laughs> I'm going off and I'm going to enjoy myself. But happy people draw people to the flies. Vivekananda, who was a famous wise man from India, he said, if you're miserable, you have no right to go out that day. <laughs> Life would be spent a lot indoors, wouldn't it? <laughs> he said, why should you inflict your misery on the world? And it's a very interesting point. Because if somebody was to take in food into their stomach and then to vomit in front of you, you think, and let's say they did it deliberately, you'd say, this is disgraceful behavior. But we vomit our emotions out all over the place. Our anger, our envies, and we spread them all over the place in our gossiping. We don't mind who we throw it at. Anybody who listen. Anybody who's got their mouth open, we put it in. <laughs> Terrible stuff. So, meditation is one thing, prayer is another, study, as was said, but also you can work on the heart. You can develop the virtues. But meditation makes it easy to develop patience. 
or easy to become compassionate. But if you don't have meditation or you're not interested, well then you can do it prayer. It's just a bit harder. If you read the stories of some of the, you know, the great saints, there's a fantastic book out on Francis of Assisi. Millions of books on Francis of Assisi, but there's a new one out. And I was given a present of it, I read it. And it's just remarkable what he did. How he worked on his own being. When he was young, he lived a life that you and I would not be proud of. You would be interested in it, but you wouldn't be proud of it. <laughs> he had to work so hard to overcome all that. But he did it. And it's, it's a glorious story of a man's triumph. Yes, anybody else? Sorry, yes. Uh, where does the dog go around or fly? There are entities, but don't identify them. There's a difference between man working on the farm and a farmer. You see the difference between the two? You are man. You are mankind. You can never become anything less than that. Now, if you take the words of the wise and you take it from the Christian tradition, it says that man is made in the image of God. Now, do you think God is miserable? Do you think he gets upset about three-minute eggs? So, man is meant to be the most glorious of all the creatures in the creation. If he remembers this, he doesn't forget it. But he does forget. And he identifies with all sorts of things in the creation. And they can be anything. And once he identifies with it, he becomes limited to it. Motherhood is a wonderful thing. But you're not meant to be mother to one or two children. The idea of motherhood is to be mother to all children. If you just confine yourself to two or three, you'll strangle them with your possessiveness. They cause you untold misery when they emigrate to Australia. We need to be mother to any child who needs a mother. That's the way to be mother. It's the way to be father. It's the way to be friend. Not to the people on either side of you. Not number 12 and number 14. This is why Jesus, you know, when he was asked, who is my neighbor? He didn't say all those on the same street. <laughs> he kept on making this point. Publicans will wave to all their customers. <laughs> How about waving to the other publicans' customers? <laughs> no? Anybody can love the nice people. How about loving the not-so-nice people? And the way to do this is to be free of the entity. You see, I've given these examples before, but if I think I'm Irish, and I go back to the last Olympics and I watch swimming, swimming sessions, I didn't see the race. I saw Michelle Smith I don't know who came second. And I felt exhilaration when she won her medals, and I felt disappointment at the possibility that she didn't win them fairly. That's because I was Irish. I felt very sorry for the families of the Russian submarine people, but I didn't experience their grief, because I'm not Russian. Now, if I read a newspaper and it says, uh, bus in Pakistan 
goes off road into ravine with 97 people on it. I think that's a pity, but they have terrible roads out there. And the drivers are awful. And then the next day's paper said, could be five Irish on board. This is terrible stuff. And you find out there was. And you knew one of them. And it was a nurse. A nurse dying is much worse than an accountant dying. (laughs) (laughs) And she was just going to get married. Now, there's whatever, I can't remember the number. I've got 87 Pakistanis, all dead. It means absolutely nothing to me. And there's one Irish, and I met her once at a party. She ignored me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so upset about this. Only because I think I'm Irish. And then the next day it says, no, she was Australian. The video is done. Now, interesting enough is if you don't take on the identity, you become free. Now, becoming free is not somebody who has no feelings. This is the word that sometimes people have. They say, well, if I don't have an identity, am I some sort of blob who doesn't feel anything? No. You only have one emotion. Love. You have only one knowledge, and that's understanding. So your whole life is full of love and understanding. Because all the biases and the prejudices and the limitations and the miseries come from identification. The child, at a very early age, has no real awareness of its own body and mind. You sometimes will see a child looking at its toes. You know it doesn't know that it's its own toes. It's sort of picking. It doesn't know that those toes are attached all the way back. (laughs) And you say to a child, you're beautiful. And they say, yes. You're the most beautiful uh, little girl in the world. Yes. And when a child is in a pram and sees a black man or a white man or a yellow man or a brown man, it just sees man. And it doesn't see surgeon and street sweeper. And it doesn't see rich or poor or handsome or ugly. It acknowledges that everybody is a human being. This is why we love them so much, because they don't judge us. (laughs) now that is your true nature you are what you are and these entities come and go and it's obvious that they're passing when I was young I thought you know at one stage the pram was important another stage it was you know a tricycle then it might have been a record the latest Rolling Stones album. I got it. <laughs> I got that first one from the store. And then it might have been a girlfriend. And then it might have been my first job or my first car. Now it's my pension scheme. <laughs> Will the burial plot take the entire family? Or I have to buy two? You know, I have different things that my mind preoccupies itself with. You tell a 16-year-old, if you don't study, you're unlikely to get an inflation-proof pension. (laughs) It just means nothing. (laughs) But you look at 55-year-olds, they don't discuss pension schemes. They don't discuss their tricycles or their little bicycles anymore. 
It's a different set of values because we've now become a middle-aged man and middle-aged men don't talk about tricycles. They have their own little set of toys, pension scheme toys, key man insurance, all these wonderful things. But behind all of that, there's you, who's free of all of this. And you only have to let go. You only have to be that monkey. Just loosen your grip. Just like you do every night. Imagine if you could just let go when you're awake. And you can let go. Nobody says to you, let go. Anybody can let go. You know, there's a story told of a man crossing the desert and he's got a bag of rubbish which weighs on him heavily but he carries it across the desert and a wiser man on a horse comes by and says to him why are you carrying that? and he says it's because it's all that I have the reason we won't let go is because it's all we have and we're afraid if we let go we'll have nothing but you know it's like we suppress our happiness. So that's like putting an air-filled ball, putting your hand on it and pressing down hard so it's completely submerged in the water. And somebody says to you, just let go. And you say, I'm afraid if I let go, it'll sink to the bottom. You say, trust me, just let go, it'll rise to the top. And they say, I can't. I'm afraid it'll sink to the bottom I have nothing that's the way it is with us we're afraid to let go so the secret is to let go the little things the things that are obviously of no benefit to you the little irritations the little annoyances the little things that steal your happiness let go of those and see what happens and then it's a bit like as you climb a mountain the vision keeps changing other things which were previously hidden will now become exposed and then you'll find you have the courage and the strength to let them go. And then the pace quickens. Great big dollops of misery fall off. <laughs> the supreme emotional diet. Yes. Sorry, um, I just allowed somebody else. Yeah, I was trying to go back to the philosophy for a question. I think it's as far as our expression and smaller than things like that. That's actually creating what happens. Oh, absolutely. If I was murdered, do you think that would be a tragedy? A man of compassion. On what basis? What's terrible about I'm free, I never have to come to Cork again. <laughs> like I'm feeling happier already. <laughs> But trauma is not necessary. It's not necessary. Grief is based on the belief of loss. When a mother walks out of a room with a very young child, the child grieves because he thinks he's lost his mother. Non-appearance is non-existence. You watch the grief of the child in that moment. It's extreme. It can actually become hysterical. 
because the disappearance of the mother means the non-existence of the mother. Now, as you get a bit older, you realise that the one that went around the corner reappears every so often again. And you stop grieving, because you understand that non-appearance is not the same as non-existence. And if you could understand death is merely non-appearance to those with human eyes, not non-existence, then you wouldn't grieve. These eyes can only see in certain light. If it gets too bright, you can see nothing, like when you stare into the sun. If it's absolutely dark, you can see nothing. They only see within a certain degree of light. So, perhaps you lose sensual contact. But if you love someone, sensual contact is not a loss. So you have to answer these questions before you can decide whether grief is wise or ill-founded. This is helpful rather than proof. If grief is real, if it is something real, it cannot be produced by falsehood. You cannot produce truth from falsehood. Does that make sense? You can only produce falsehood from falsehood. And there's a lovely story, Ramana Maharshi, I think it was, who tells this story to show that grief is false. He tells the story of two young men who leave their village in India to go and seek a wise man to discover the truth about themselves. I don't have Indian names, so I'm going to just use English names. So one's called Fred, and the other one's called Sid. And they leave the village. They go off into the Himalayas, and uh, they meet the wise man. And Fred becomes ill and dies. Sid serves the master and becomes perfectly happy, discovers the truth about himself. Many years later, a man from the same village wanders into this ashram, and he meets Sid and announces that he's from the same village. And Sid says, look, when you go back to the village, will you tell my mother and father that I have discovered the truth about myself and I'm blissfully happy? And would you also inform Fred's parents that Fred's dead? It's a long journey back, and the villager is not the brightest one that hasn't got the best memory in the world. He gets confused. So he goes to Fred's parents and he said, I met with Fred. He's perfectly happy. He's realized himself. He's living absolutely happily in the Himalayas. And he goes to Sid's parents and terrible news for you. Sid's dead. Now, Sid's parents suffer unbelievable grief and Fred's parents are joy, tremendous joy. Produced by error, by falsehood. What we have to find is a happiness which is beyond all of that, which is not dependent on whether somebody tells you that Fred's dead or Sid's dead. That is not dependent on the continuing existence of a son or a daughter or a wife or of this body. Many years ago, I was in France, and I was reading a book, and it's called Yoga Washishtu. I think... I had to make up these figures. I think the account was overdrawn by 30 or 50,000 pounds or some figure. And this was an absolute burden to the heart. And it was a long holiday, which gives you a long time to become depressed. <laughs> <laughs> you notice it's about long holidays. 
began to think, God, where's the money going to come from to clear off this overdraft? I can't see beyond three months and where's all the income going to be to support my family and all this sort of stuff. And I became really down in the dumps. As a means of shaking it off, I started to read this book. And in this book, there was this lady called Leela, and her husband had died. And she was a very good lady, and she asked the god of death, could she join her husband? And the god of death decided to show her all her past lives. And he said, you've been married to this man five times already. Once you were woodcutters, and all your children had died in the plague. And, and he lay out these five stories. He says, you're eternal. You're eternal. Remember that. And Leela's grief was dissolved. And I asked her, I said, if I'm eternal, what is a temporary overdraft got to do with my eternal existence? It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's like finding one grey hair on the pillow. Yeah, but the rest of them are dark. It's a non-event. All these things which disturb us. If you're a child and you've no money and somebody gives you a pound and it falls through your pocket, a hole in your pocket, it's a tragedy. You contemplate ending your life there and then. Because it's all your wealth. If you've got a million pounds, a lot of women is nothing. The poorer you are, the more valuable your possessions will be. Does that make sense? The poorer your image of yourself, the more important your possessions will be to you. But if you really, really, really value yourself, then possessions can come and go. You become like the gardener, who's absolutely happy to accept spring, summer, autumn, and winter. Who does not grieve at winter, because there's another spring. Why would you cry for the flowers of last year when you know there are going to be flowers of next year? We have such a small view of our lives. We think I exist for 72 years. How do you know? Maybe you're grieving for the wrong reasons. Why not find out who you are? And when you found out who you are, then you'll find out whether there's a reason to grieve or not. The wise say there's no reason to grieve. It's a mistake. Yes, maybe one last one. I like very much much which you said today here, but I think my friend of mine tried really to return you to my question. When I asked, you spoke moving impressively about how you were able to accept your father going through that. But when I mentioned that the violence, abuse, rape, extreme poverty, you seem to entirely sidestep what I've asked by your four-minute heads and your own drafts. Yesterday, I was talking to a young man whose very promising young brother had been violent and poisoned in Uganda. Yes. Now, that young man 
couldn't continue with his university course. He is now, through healing, through faith in his brother's eternal death and safety, uh, found himself again. And yes, he has happened. I think if I had said to him in any way, and I don't want to be rude to you, that had he previously heard your lecture and accepted your philosophy, then he would have maintained his happiness through that ghastly experience. Uh, I think I'd been very unhelpful to him. And I wonder if you could address what I said. You have very important things to say, but I don't think you would really answer in any way the pain which people do face. And again, you gave us Jesus, you gave us the supreme examples of grants for ceasing. I don't think Jesus showed happiness when he took his whip and cleansed the temple. Uh, he would have an ultimate belief in Jesus' father. I know, not speaking because we could speak of Buddhism or whatever, but I think because you have an important message, you're also Seriously, All right. Well, if somebody is grieving for the loss of a son or a daughter, it may be absolutely inappropriate to say anything that I have said to them. Your speech must always be to the person in front of you. It is not sufficient to simply speak the truth. So when a child says to you, what is school like? You speak to the child. You don't talk about trigonometry. You don't talk about failing leaving certificates or missing out on a particular place by five points. You talk to the child. So you talk to the person's understanding. You try and lift them up the next step. The one thing is, you don't multiply their misery. So if somebody's in misery, you don't multiply their misery by becoming miserable yourself. But you try and lift their misery. Now, in whatever way their misery can be lifted, lift it. Whatever way. A lady came to me whose husband had died and was in grief. Serious, serious grief. She came to me because she was contemplating suicide. So I spoke to her. I asked her, was she religious? She said yes. But she couldn't accept that this was God's will. Her husband was quite young. She was young. She couldn't accept it. You couldn't say, I accept there's some sort of universal justice working here. So there was no point in talking to her about universal justice. Her heart, at that point in time, and in that state, was unable to hear anything about universal justice or any of these things. But she had a couple of children whom she loved dearly. And I said to her, did she believe that if she could be strong in this moment of adversity, that it would help her children face adversity if it arose in their lives. For their sake, could she show that there could be happiness after the death of a husband? And that if she could show that, would that not be a wonderful thing to show a couple of children and any neighbour and any friends that knew her? And she said, for their sake, she could do it. So the conversation was not about eternal existence. It wasn't about God. It was about darkness. And that lady, I've met her since, and she looks happy to me. But what allowed her to 
rise above her grief was the love of her daughters. So that's the meeting point. You find the point in the other person where they can meet you. It would have been a disgraceful thing to say to her that grief is illusory, or to have told her the story about the two Indians. You can't say that to somebody who's grieving for a lost husband. But you could speak to them about what a mother could do for her two children. And the reason it wasn't avoidance on my part as regards rape and murder. But I have to be absolutely sure that you can discuss rape and murder with a still mind and a still heart. So the idea is to take an example which doesn't upset you, which is a small, simple example. Not, not with the idea of it being frivolous, but just small and simple. And if you can accept the principle in relation to a small and simple example, you might be able to see that that could apply on the large scale as well. This talk has made unbelievably controversial statements. It says you are perfectly happy in all circumstances, irrespective of your environment. That is an unbelievable statement. But if I just left with that, that would be a terrible thing for you, because it's not practical. So what you're left with is a very simple discipline. Don't sell your happiness for nothing. Now that is something you can work and you may find that your general level of happiness will increase. And as it increases, it will grow stronger. And as it grows stronger, it may be able to rise to greater and greater adversity. And who knows one day what adversity you will be able to face without loss of bliss. The original meaning of the word to suffer is to allow to happen without loss of bliss. That's what it means. To allow to happen without loss of bliss. But be gentle with yourself, so you start off with the little ones. So I shall just leave with that. Don't sell your happiness. Nobody's buying. Thank you. Thank you.